so ready for that to be dumped. Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined as always by Melbourne journalists Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Zara is a no. Hi. Hello. Coming up on today's show, our obsession with finding words and colours to define the year that was. Plus the age of Instagram face and then a look at Rihanna's 2019, one that saw her at the centre of the public consciousness despite not releasing a second of music. But first, Michelle, how was your week? I had a great week. I want to move to Adelaide. So do I. That is a sentence I never thought I would say. It is a sentence that is absolutely factually correct because on Monday, you and I, Zara, travelled to Adelaide to interview the wonderful Belle Sloan. If you haven't listened to that In Conversation episode, let that be my first recommendation for the week. Listen to our interview with Belle. She is magnificent. So we went to Adelaide. We only spent a very short amount of time there. We went to a cafe. We then went back to the airport after Belle's house and I want to move there. The beaches are beautiful. The weather was lovely on the particular day that we were there. It was such a nice, beautiful city to visit. There was no traffic. No traffic. It didn't have that sense of chaos that I think Melbourne has. And we'd been so caught up in the chaos of, I don't know, everything in the last few weeks (laughs) that suddenly we'd landed in this city that just felt calm and everybody felt happy. At the airport, I remember, do you remember what happened at the airport? I was going through the security and there was no one in security. (laughs) And my jacket got caught on my arm as I was trying to take it off. So I said to the one guy behind me, sorry, just go in front. And he said, no, no, here, let me help you with that jacket. This older man. That is so Adelaide, don't you think? <laughs> I, I was sitting waiting for the flight home thinking I actually don't really want to leave. This is such a nice place to be. And it was probably my favourite day of work all year. We said it was the like the least stressful day ever, <laughs> which is stupid when you fly into a city and fly out on the same day. Those are the days that usually kill you, but not this one. Totally. Adelaide, we will be back. We will be back. <laughs> we will so be back. We might never leave when we come back. <laughs> that's, your, that's your issue. Why is it so underrated though? People give Adelaide a hard time. I fucking love Adelaide. I'd love to go to the Barossa Valley as well. Yes. We you should and do I that. should go on a winery tour. Yeah, less calm, less chaotic, but yes, still very Adelaide. Do you have any recommendations for me this week? I do. A bit of a curveball. I thought I was quite unique in loving this Netflix series, but then I was looking on my Netflix Explore page and it's like, you know when it says most popular right now or trending? It's all in the trending section. Have you heard of Terrace House? No. Okay, I have to credit my sister Evelyn for getting me onto this. Terrace House is a Japanese kind of like amalgamation between Big Brother, Love Island and Gogglebox and it is an awesome show. So you have to watch it with subtitles on because it's Japanese but you watch six people in a house and they kind of rotate people through every month or so. So it's like a new batch of people now and again. But the show goes for a full year. So they do weekly episodes basically for 52 weeks. I think the season I'm watching right now goes for 46 uh, and it's awesome. That's a huge investment from production to want to do that over the course of a year. Sarah, it's fucking great. You know how like my heart yearns for Love Island? Yeah. It has been, that yearning has been replaced so beautifully by Terrace House. And because it's subtitles, you have to watch, you have to put your phone down nice. and invest yourself fully in the drama. And it's beautiful. And the way that Japanese romantic relationships progress is so fascinating to me. That's lovely. I want to watch that. Yeah. So you can't even hold hands. Oh, well, you don't really hold hands with someone who's not your boyfriend. 
And then the progression is quite quick. So you date someone for maybe two months, hold hands once your boyfriend, girlfriend, and then you like have sex in the first week that you're dating. It's very unusual, but I love it and I'm on board. That sounds amazing. Yes, I know. And my mum loves it too. What, how was your week? What do you recommend? Give it all to me. Week was good. Um, as you said, we loved Adelaide. I went to the Moonlight Cinema to see Love Actually, Aww. which is such, it, it was putting me in such a lovely mood watching yeah. that film. And then as I left, I approved a post in the Facebook group where someone said, can I have all articles on why Love Actually is problematic? And I I know that we encourage that kind of conversation in the Facebook group because and we've we've spoken about that topic in particular last year on the podcast yes. about people wanting to unpack and unpick love actually but it's so one of those films where I'm so happy to turn my brain my morals and all of my <laughs> values off just to watch and be happy it's problematic but it's not that problematic no, like I'm just I just love watching it and I can't I think be I'm too biased to I'm like s- even see the problem well someone asked us the other day we did like a thing on Instagram if you had to do a Q&A with us what would you ask yes. and someone said do you feel like you have bias and I was like all the time like I couldn't properly do an, a segment on love actually I absolutely couldn't I love the film too much to be smart about it the thing that I want to recommend I think I semi-recommended it but I'm like four episodes deep now and I want to re-recommend properly and that is Morning Wars uh, on Apple TV it is so so good with Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston I just love it. It's just drama. What makes it good? I don't watch that much TV. So if something's like dramatic enough and has got enough stars in it, I'll be there. Mm-hmm. But it's it's got a pretty gripping storyline. Is Steve Carell the douchebag male yes, co-host? and he's so much more of a douchebag than I thought he was going to be. Like really? he's so, so unlikable. And I know that anyone accused of sexual misconduct is not going to be painted in a particularly likable way, but he is so unlikable in this series. I love Steve Carell. And also the kind of machinations of morning TV. I think it's so often that we look at morning TV stars and see them as glittery stars but seeing the grit behind Jennifer Aniston's character and how she really does carry a show just by herself um, and how that star power is so much more than just a face on camera I think is really interesting and so true of morning television. All of this in mind do you think that very scathing profile on Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon that we spoke about a few episodes ago was fair? It's really interesting because I can't get this thought out of my mind and that is the idea that the show and for those who might not have heard us talk about it, does focus on a morning television star accused of sexual misconduct. And the show follows his co-anchor, Jennifer Aniston, and her anger Mm. about that. And it is strange seeing the show focus on the anger of a woman who wasn't a victim. And I think ever since I read that article, you can't help but think about it the entire time, that it does feel unequally weighted. That said, I think it's valid anger. And I think we do have a lot of stories from angry victims. I think we could hear a lot more about victim anger, but it still makes for a gripping show. Amazing. I think I actually finally need to download Apple TV Plus and watch that over the summer. I think you definitely do. You watch Terrace House and I'll watch that. Okay, it's a deal. <laughs> Onto the show, Mish. We wanted to start today because we haven't stopped talking in the last couple of weeks about how words of the year and colours of the year and just general stuff of the year seem to be everywhere at this time of year. Exactly. What would you like to start with? Should we talk about colour or words first? <laughs> you, hey, you choose. Freedom is yours in this podcast. <laughs> I want to talk about colour of the year, right? Before I talk about the colour for next year and all the predictions that have come out of Pantone. I want to address the colour for 2019 because I think it was a gross, gross mistake and I don't understand how it ever came about. Now, for those wondering who the fuck picks colour of the year, I'm so glad you asked. There is a company called Pantone and Pantone have a really unusual job of deciding the shades and the names of every shade 
worldwide. It's like a colour language is what they call it. It's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool job to be in. They are colour technology specialist expert people. Every year... (laughs) Such is the formal title. (laughs) Every year they pick the colour, they forecast the trend of the year ahead and they pick the colour that you will apparently see trends in all facets of daily life, such as the entertainment industry, emerging artists, fashion, technology and more. Now, before we get on to the colour for next year, I want to hear your, I guess, evaluation of how this year's colour fared. Apparently, the colour of 2019 was supposed to be living coral, which is a deep coral colour, and we were supposed to see that everywhere in fashion and technology and business. Now, please, was that an accurate colour prediction? Like, I don't know. It's not like we're all walking in the saturation of living coral, and it's not like I take that much like notice of specific colour shades that tend to be trending at any given time. I'm just confused how that was ever a colour that was going to be on trend. I thought that I saw purple everywhere this year. I think the thing about colour of the year is it's much more than about being a physical trend and much more about being a political statement. Okay, interesting. Living coral is an interesting one because there's not much living coral left. Talk to me about 2020. 2020, we have gone for the most boring colour I think I've ever seen. It's called classic blue and it's basically a colour that you would see in offices or businesses. Like, you know that really just fucking boring basic blue colour? That's it. That's our colour for 2020. It is exactly the colour that you would find on like the walls, like the padded (laughs) walls of a meeting room deep in the CBD. How do we feel about it? I mean, I think about this one is they chose the colour classic blue because it's a reassuring presence instilling calm, confidence and connection. I have to say, I don't really know what that means so much. Like I'd love to be someone that comes on market being like, I understand. Let's talk about, you know, the metaphors with that. And I think these colours are so much more than about trends. I did do a bunch of reading about colour of the year and how it actually functions. And there was this really interesting story on Quartz by Anne Quito. Did you read this story? Yes, I did. She wrote, it's time to retire colour of the year. And she argued that months before the unveiling in December of the colour of the year, it enters into, and by it she means Pantone, enters into licensing agreements with various companies from nail polish to hotel suites in order that the exact hue materialises in various guises. Suddenly, the colour of the year is everywhere. The logic of a new it colour everywhere is undeniable. Colour drives consumerism. Interesting. So I find this an interesting idea because what we wanted to talk about today is how desperate we are to sort of wrap a year and how desperate we are to label a year and package a year. And I think a colour of the year tends to do that. Like we're trying to find something that will make some sort of statement about the year that was. But I think the other thing to consider is it's just a big fuck around, like a big marketing ploy in order to get us to spend because colour does drive consumerism and we're going to buy things probably subconsciously where this colour is trending. It's become deeply, deeply commercialised and it's almost inextricable from that now. It is an institution, right? There has been an official colour of the year announced every year for 20 years and every time it's revealed, it is up straight away in the New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, are Forbes magazine Vogue. Like this is something that we gravitate towards so entirely and it's the same with word of the year. We do want to define years and time like you said by like very tangible pinned down things. I think it's it almost helps us understand who we are more. I don't identify with the colors of the year, but the words of the year I have found really really fascinating. I think particularly from Merriam-Webster dictionary, they announced they is the word of the year after a 300% rise in searches for the pronoun. So people are in such huge numbers googling the word they as opposed to she or he, and I think that says a lot about how we're moving as a society. Do you think that's true. 
Do you think people are Googling it? or Because I love the idea that they're making this the word of the year. I don't think they need to be so literal in mm. saying it's up 3,000%, therefore it's our word of the year. Why can't they just say this is a word that we're using more in our lexicon in a different way, therefore it's the word of the year? But don't you think this is a way to prove it? Like Google search is a sole way to prove it. You can't really pin down anything unless you have the stats behind it. And I think with someone like Sam Smith coming out and totally. saying that they prefer the pronoun they as opposed to he is fascinating and that would have a lot of people talking. I think it's the same with the Oxford word of the year of 2019. That was announced as climate emergency. I think that's really interesting. I mean, I don't think the Google search is all that relevant purely because I don't actually know if I believe them. Mm. I think it's just an important way to wrap the year and say, what are we talking about more? Climate emergency, that wording is so particular rather than climate change or anything like that. That really does reflect that increasing sense of terror yes. about the climate, like that em- sense of emergency. I mean, the word emergency is there. How about this one? The official Macquarie Dictionary word of the year is cancel culture. Ah, which, I mean, it's not a word, it's a phrase, but no, also is climate emergency. <laughs> yeah. But I think all of these things are so, so highly political. And I think the question that I want to come back to, which is kind of similar to colour of the year, like are these words of the year deliberately provocative in order to generate press? And I say deliberately provocative because you know that there are some people that are going to get annoyed by this. Mm. Or are they just indicative of our increasingly political world? Well, I wonder if they're indicative of an increasing political divide. Yeah. In that... Yes, the pronoun they amongst progressive left-leaning people like you and I is totally and wholeheartedly accepted. But it's also acknowledged that on the other side of the spectrum, people won't so wholeheartedly accept it. And I think making it the word of the year is indicative of what people are moving towards and moving away from. I think that now that I'm thinking about it, even if it is a big marketing ploy to stir up press, that in itself means it is the word of the year because it's the word that's going to divide us the most and get us talking the most, which means it's pretty much a word for the year. I'm surprised it wasn't something like Brexit. I know that's very localised and specific to one region, but Brexit is not a not an official word, but it almost has become that over the last few years. And I was shocked to see that wasn't the word of the year of 2019. Mind you, maybe it was the word of the year in like 2017 or something and I missed it. I wanted to look back very quickly before we move on about the last few words of the year from Merriam-Webster, because I think it is a really interesting way to look back on the, the last few years. In 2018, Merriam-Webster said the word of the year was justice. So think the Mueller inquiry, Mm. um, Christine Blasey Ford v. Brett Kavanaugh. 2017 was feminism. Think about the kind of emergence of the Me Too movement at the very end of 2017. 2016, I find really interesting. They named surreal as their word of the year and they explained it because it captured both tragedy and surprise as it was a year marked by quite a few terrorist attacks. Mm. And I think they said a lot of the news coverage covering these terrorist attacks did name the physical optics of these terror attacks as surreal. Yeah, and it was also the year Trump came into power, right? So that's quite surreal in itself. Exactly. So when I first read it, I was like, that's a bit disappointing. But I think when you unpack the year, you think, nah, that wraps it pretty, pretty well. I mean, for me, it helps in a way to explain why the Spotify wrapped campaign does so well every single year, especially this year, because it goes away to helping us define ourselves over the course of a year. Thank you, next bitch. And now it's time for the quick and dirty. Every week we give you the top five stories from the rough and tumble of the celebrity news cycle. Zara, Alice, McDonald, 
take it away, my fine-footed friend. Oh, my fine-footed friend. Did that just fall out of you? Yes. I'm I, so proud of that. For those wondering at home, I do have very fine feet. Story number one, Taylor Swift calls out Scooter Braun during Billboard Women of the Year music speech. That is from Rolling Stone. Now, did you listen to the speech? I've listened to parts of it, but I haven't watched it from where to go. It went for 15 minutes. I listened to the entire thing. Number one, I've got to say, I really struggle with my own inbuilt tall poppy syndrome in that I am Taylor Swift's like biggest fan. I love Taylor Swift. However, even as an Australian listening to her acceptance speech and her going through all of the awards she's won across the year and all of her accolades and success, I had that very Australian response of recoiling every time she was very specific. Like during one point in her speech, I know this is so off track with what we were going to talk about with Scooter Braun, but I'll just say this for the beginning. I was so like I was clenching myself when she was saying oh I was the youngest person ever to win this award I didn't just win it I was the youngest ever and things like that I really need to pull myself up on because I think it is such ingrained tall poppy and it's such an ugly trait that I have in myself like why shouldn't she be proud of herself for winning that stuff anyway the stuff about Scooter Braun she completely eviscerated him in this speech she basically said he's the epitome of toxic masculinity and really rehashed and recounted their feud over the fact that Scooter Braun sold the rights to her music to private equity instead of giving Taylor Swift the ability to buy it herself, or so she says. Now, what did you make of the quotes? I think it's really interesting because people still get so frustrated at Taylor Swift for calling out Scooter Braun. It's almost like you've got enough, you're rich enough, you're successful enough. Why go down this rabbit hole? You're acting like the victim again. But I stand by the idea that it is so important for two reasons that she keeps being loud about this. Firstly, I think it's very good for women. And I say that because so many women who want to call people out are so worried about looking like the ugly, angry woman. And I think she needs to make an example of herself for the rest of us. I know that sounds very, very Pollyanna, but I think she can go first because she has the backing of a lot of other people around her. She can go first and make those really firm, unapologetic accusations and it is better for the rest of us. The second thing is I think it's good for young musicians. I think it's very good for her to make an example of these people if this is something that's very prolific in the music industry. I totally agree with that. And if we're casting Taylor Swift as the angry, whinging woman. Imagine what we would do to a woman of colour. Exactly. And the rest of us who want to do it in the workplace or wherever it is, it's never fun or attractive to make the claims that she's making. But I think it's a very good case study for the rest of us to watch it happen unfold publicly. Absolutely. I do want to make one little observation about Scooter Braun and the PR strategy from his camp. It's very, very clear to me that ever since this narrative of Taylor v Scooter came out into the public domain, Scooter Braun's PR team have been working pretty hard to make him look like a male feminist. If you go through his Instagram account, have you done this, Sarah? I haven't. So he's got over 3 million followers and I was scrolling through this while listening to Taylor Swift's speech. He has very deliberately tried to, first of all, shout out the female artists in his label, but also align himself with pro-feminism movements such as Greta Thunberg. So when Greta Thunberg was named Times Person of the Year, he shared that on his feed, being like, what an amazing moment for women. And this was a few days before the speech. I just find it very interesting that his feed is very particular and has a very, very different tone to what it did before the Taylor Swift feud. I'm just looking at it now and I imagine a lot of people are on the feed right now. There's an Instagram feed post that he uploaded on December 4, which was Apple Music's top streamed female songs of 2019, which is, a, is quite interesting. I think the other thing that I noticed as well on here, which is the very classic upload after all of this has made press, which 
which is be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. As <laughs> if like, don't go too hard on me. I've got shit going on. <laughs> anyway, number two, actor Colin Firth splits from wife Livia after 22 years, almost two years after it emerged, she had an affair with her childhood friend. That is from the Daily Mail. Are you across this story? I am so across this story because I obviously just watched Love Actually a few days ago. So my heart <laughs> has been rebroken for Colin Firth. This story is very interesting. For those who missed it, two years ago, it was reported that Colin Firth's wife was having or had had an affair with a childhood friend, a journalist. She came out and said, actually, he's stalking me now. He's harassing me and applied to get a restraining order on all of those things. Colin Firth's camp at the time came out and said, actually, the two were split. They had a brief hiatus from their marriage at that time. Other people have pointed out that there were still multiple red carpet appearances Mm -hmm. with the two of them when they said they were separated. It might be an interesting tactic of spin to say we quietly separated for the 11 months that she was sleeping with this journalist and then quietly rekindled and no one knew a thing. I just, I find that interesting. I'm not saying it's, it's one way or the other. It's though, right? If yeah. that was me, I think I'd almost say the same thing. If I wanted to rework on my marriage and I didn't want prying eyes about said affair, I'd probably say the same thing. Yes. I do find it interesting two years after that story broke, they've finally split. Yes, absolutely. I feel incredibly sorry for her, whether or not it was an affair or whether or not it was just a monogamous relationship during her split from her husband. I feel incredible sympathy and sadness for her that she slept with this man and he proceeded to try to intimidate her and harass her after she did so. I feel very, very sorry for her. Apparently he was sending naked images of her to Colin Firth's email address after they had slept together and I just find the whole story to be very icky and very sad. It is a very, very sad story and I think regardless of what happens, she is being made an example of right now in the breakdown of that marriage and I don't know if that's fair because we don't know if it's true. Number three, Weinstein and his accusers reached tentative $25 million deal that is from the New York Times. Now, if you're not across this, I'll give you a very brief rundown. It has been a tentative deal, as Zara said, that Weinstein will be paying his accusers between them. I think there's more than 30 accusers will be splitting about $25 million. Now, importantly, that $25 million US is not coming from Weinstein's pocket. It's coming from his company's pocket, which is pretty curious given that he won't really suffer from what he is accused of doing. Yeah, it is sparked a lot of anger. Um, But I think for me, the most pragmatic way to look at it is I don't know if there was any other way that any of these women and their pain was going to be recognised. And that's just an indictment on the system. It's an indictment on how hard it is to press charges in these kinds of things. It's an indictment on a whole lot when it comes to sexual assault and sexual misconduct. So as angry as it could make me, it's also making me feel a little like, well, what else is there to do about this? You almost have to be quite pragmatic and cold about it, that of course money is never going to heal the wound caused by sexual assault or sexual harassment. But in reality, there might be very few other mechanisms these women can deploy to get justice. And it's just a little acknowledgement that something did happen. If nothing else, it's an acknowledgement that it was systematic too, that it came, that the money is coming from the business. Of course, we'd prefer the money to come from Harvey Weinstein's pocket. But two, I think it's important 
important that it's coming from a business that enabled this to happen. So I think that matters too. It is important as well to note that this is not the end of Weinstein's legal battles. He will be going to court next month, I think, to face allegations from two women on assault charges. Correct. So that will still come and I'm sure that will be all over the news when it does. Number four, Olivia Wilde addresses controversy around her Richard Jewell character. Have you seen this story around? No, that's from CNN and I need you to run me through it because I have no idea what's going on. Very strange story, this one. So the Clint Eastwood film Richard Jewell is out at the moment. It's, It's getting a whole lot of Oscar buzz. And it is about the journalist, the female journalist, Kathy Scruggs, who died in 2001. And she broke a story that said the FBI was investigating a security guard, Richard Jewell, for a bombing during the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. Yes. I hadn't actually heard of the journalist, but the story itself seems very, very interesting. I am kind of across this. As you were giving the details, it triggers something in my mind. I think I vaguely recall, but yes. Yeah, so it sounds like a really interesting story. Olivia Wilde plays Kathy Scrux. People are slamming the film because it is a basically alleging that Scruggs was trading sex for information from an FBI source, oh. which isn't confirmed by the family, which is not a claim supported by friends and people in Scruggs' circle. It seems like a bit of an iffy storyline to oh. run with. And Olivia Wilde has come out and actually had to address that by why she took on that character. And she kind of hinted that she thought it was more of a love story between Scruggs and this FBI source, when in reality, everyone's saying, well, that's not how they're painting it on the film. I mean, and she's coming out and saying, well, I don't have power over how they portray it. This is how I just interpreted the script. It's a pretty weak softening tactic. If you're depicting someone who was prostituting themselves out and you want to then argue that's just a a romantic love story is pretty weak. And the weirdest thing is she said, contrary to a swathe of recent headlines, I do not believe that Kathy traded sex for tips. Nothing in my research suggested she did so and it was never my intention to suggest she had. That would be an appalling and misogynistic dismissal of the difficult work she did. Which is an interesting (sighs) thing to say, considering apparently that's what the film has sort of... Conveyed. Uh, conveyed. I'll be interested to see if that does harm its Oscars prospects. And number five, Michelle, the last story. Did you forget your pants? Carrie Ann Kennelly insults Studio 10 reporter. That is from New Idea. It's been a while since CAC has featured in our Quick and Dirty. And <laughs> I've got to say, I wish she was reappearing on Better Circumstances. CAC, come back on Better Terms. CAC tends to appear every now and then. She tends to rear her head and say something very OK Boomer-esque. This time, in fact, seems to be the definition of slut shaming, right? Yeah. So she was on the couch on Studio 10 and Studio 10 reporter Antoinette Latouf was live on air and she turned to Antoinette as their mid-story and said, did you forget your pants today? Antoinette did look clearly embarrassed and very caught off guard and was like, oh, it's a play suit. And then she said, and she's going to be thirsty, which I don't actually understand. I've watched this clip that many times and if people want to come to our episode thread in the Facebook group and tell me how they interpret that cack line, please do. I've listened to this clip and played this clip over time and time again and I still can't work it out. I'm going to play it right now for you guys so you can have a listen and see what you think is meant by this. Back in the day, we had another word for it. Horny. Yeah, horny. <laughs> I don't know what you're really? saying. Yes. You yeah, totally. You heard me. Yes. It doesn't mean thirsty. No, no, emoji has actually made it into the dictionary. We all know what oh, emoji yeah. is. We yeah. all use it. A but little. the actual word... I don't. Em- you don't use emojis? I don't use emojis. There you go. Oh, it's and I actually... I personally like to speak to people. Yeah. On the phone? Did you forget your pants today? Yeah. It's, oh. it's, a, it's, a, it's a play suit. A place and suit. she looks unbelievable. And she's going to be thirsty. Yeah. You look, 
looks like good old Cack wants me to burn my about 15 play suits then. I didn't realise showing your legs means that you're suddenly horny. That does seem like the implication, doesn't it? Mm. Regardless, it's a pretty strange thing. And I think when we saw this clip together, we both said, God, it reminds me of that intrinsic embarrassment you feel when people point out what you're wearing and how you're wearing it. And it's such, Antoinette's reaction is such a common, relatable one. Mm, Just to feel awkward and shy and not really come back at it in the moment. But it's so surprising and jarring, sorry, buzzword, whenever someone does that and points out that your skirt might be short or your shorts are short or whatever. You don't really know how to respond in the moment. You just feel thoroughly and completely uncomfortable. And exposed. You think that people are watching you in a way that you don't want them to watch you. So... Yeah, I don't know. I would love people to come to our Facebook group, Shameless Podcast Community, and talk to us about that one because I want a better interpretation of what was actually going on there. Is that all you've got for me? That is all I've got for you. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, the omnipresence of Instagram face. Zara predicts we finally get our little results <laughs> for what for your predictions of Jen's Bumble date. And then how Rihanna is the ultimate influencer. But first, a word from our sponsor. This week, New Yorker writer Gia Tolentino penned a piece called The Age of Instagram Face, where she explored how Instagram has created its own perfect face thanks to the prolification of plastic surgery online this decade. In tweeting out the article on her Twitter feed, Tolentino wrote, I went to Beverly Hills and posed as a would-be patient at the offices of the top celebrity plastic surgeons to see what I could learn about the arms race between digital and physical improvement that is Instagram face. That tweet on her own feed has been reached tweeted nearly a thousand times and been liked more than 5,000 times. Her contention was a simple one, that Instagram has created an artificial face and plastic surgery has helped it thrive. Mish, how did you enjoy the story? You're laughing to yourself. I have a confession to make. You're going to say, I want a plastic surgery after you're eating this? Yeah. Oh my God, I got it. (laughs) I kind of... I know that this article was critiquing plastic surgery and pointing out that the system that we operate in is a little bit fucked up when it comes to Instagram and Facetune and plastic surgery. However, I would be lying to myself if I said I didn't click away from that article and start thinking about whether or not I could afford Botox. Really? That surprises me. Well, it's always been something that I've thought about being like, would I get Botox? I probably wouldn't get fillers. I would probably get Botox in the future, but- but I, I, that really does confuse me because this story just painted it in such a horrendous light. And I'm going to put the link to the article in our show notes so people can read this. Either pause the episode now, read the article or read it after. But it, it came across as terrifying to me. Okay. There was one quote in particular. She was talking to a plastic surgeon, a celebrity plastic surgeon, and he said, you know when you get a really good haircut and you feel like the best version of yourself? This is that feeling, but exponential. I can imagine that feeling being really good and really addictive. I found that such a cop-out of a line, like (laughs) such a cop-out of a line. I want to set this piece up a bit better before we delve right into it because I wanted to read out Tolentino's lead because I think it's very, very interesting and it's also very beautifully written. Yes, it's a great article. She said, this past summer, I booked a plane ticket to Los Angeles with the hope of investigating what seems likely to be one of the oddest legacies of our rapidly expiring decade. P.S. I'm obsessed with everybody trying to define the decade too. (laughs) The gradual emergence 
among professionally beautiful women of a single cyborgian face. It's a young face, of course, with poreless skin and plump high cheekbones. It has cat-like eyes and long cartoonish lashes. It has a small neat nose and full lush lips. It looks at you coyly but blankly as if its owner has taken half a clonopin and is considering asking you for a private jet ride to Coachella. The face is distinctly white but ambiguously ethnic. It suggests a natural geographic composite illustrating what Americans will look like in 2050 if every American of the future were to be a direct descendant of Kim Kardashian West, Bella Hadid, Emily Ratajkowski and Kendall Jenner. Yes. Now that I find fascinating. I think the observation in this piece that the Instagram face that we see everywhere, it's omnipresent, is one on a Caucasian base almost. It's a Caucasian woman's face, but with say African-American lips and different features inspired by different ethnicities and races. And I think that is so accurate. And I hadn't noticed that until it was pointed out to me in this article. Now, as I say, yes, I'm tempted to get plastic surgery. I can absolutely intellectualize as to why that is a little bit fun. Up. And one analogy that I really enjoyed from this piece was talking about how Chinese women used to bind their feet to make them smaller and make them more beautiful in the eyes of men and how that was obviously crippling and painful for so many women and yet we are now injecting our faces and cutting our bodies open and I absolutely acknowledge that that is a really powerful analogy and a really valid and worthwhile one. I think as well when we talk about this Zara it's really important for us to acknowledge that this is absolutely gendered. While people listening to this might go, oh, but it's not about feminism or empowerment or women because men get plastic surgery and non-surgical cosmetic procedures too. Upon my research, I read an article from the Journal of Clinical and Aesthetic Dermatology and about 10% of clients are men, 90% plus are women. So I think it's really important that we acknowledge that the vast majority of people getting these procedures and pertaining to Instagram face are women. And I think the other interesting part about this is that even if it was 50-50, it's this idea that women are getting it to almost look like clones of each other. And I think that's the entire contention behind Tolentino's story is not that women are getting these done, but somehow we're all doing the same things to our faces. One of the things I find most interesting about this piece is the overlap between Facetune, Instagram and plastic surgery. And that was pretty scary to me. She had this quote where she went to visit this celebrity plastic surgeon and she said, so she posed as someone who was legitimately interested. She wrote, I said to him too that I was just interested in looking better and wanted to know what an expert would recommend. I showed him one of my filtered Snapchat photos. He glanced at it, nodded and said, let me show you what we can do. He took a photo of my face on his phone, projected it onto a TV screen on the wall and used Facetune. And I thought that was pretty scary because what people are actually doing with their faces online is using Facetune very, very often. But the fact you can almost Facetune your face in real life, maybe it's naive of me to be scared by that fact or be shocked by that fact. But the link between the two did seem quite shocking to me. Absolutely. And it's something that you and I have noticed more anecdotally day to day. We've often in the last few months turned to each other and shown each other photos on Instagram and said, do you think this girl in the photo realises that she is so obviously face-tuned it? I think we are so accustomed to editing our faces and editing our bodies in Instagram photos. People are doing it to such an extent they don't realise they look like cartoons now. Like some of the women on my Instagram feed don't even look human they look like drawings and that's terrifying well totally and there was another line that that Tolentino wrote about about how she wondered if we were rearranging our faces 
for engagement and likes. And I was sitting on that for so long. And I was wondering, it, firstly, it feels very Black Mirror. And I know that any time anything seems a little bit scary and futuristic, all I say is, <laughs> well, very Black Mirror. But it, And I wondered, is that actually true? And I, I came back to the fact that maybe it is. Engagement and likes is a reflection of our beauty ideal. And maybe this is just a new kind of beauty ideal. I think that's absolutely the case when we think of things like big lips or tiny, tiny waist. I think lots of people edit their waist in photos because they do think it will perform better and that idea of performance is fascinating I think one quote that stood out to me is the human body is an unusual sort of Instagram subject it can be adjusted with the right kind of effort to perform better and better over time one element of this article that I would like your input on is the very subtle but also at the same time obvious presence of celebrity in it it almost felt like part analysis piece part celebrity gossip column. One line that stood out to me was on the desk in his office, she's talking about the plastic surgeon, was a thank you note from Chrissy Teigen. It sat atop two of her cookbooks. There were also subtle mentions of Bella Hadid and particularly Kim Kardashian going to these surgeons and getting regular work done. And I found that to be a very fascinating inclusion, particularly the Chrissy Teigen one. The Chrissy Teigen one was the one that made me raise my eyebrows the most, maybe because she's not as open as perhaps the others are about getting work done. But I thought it was incredibly important that these names were thrown in there because I think her entire contention is that we're trying to look like the same ideal of a woman and that woman is based on like an amalgamation of Bella Hadid and Kim Kardashian, those names we said before. I wanted to ask you, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, or it was probably a month or two ago now, when Instagram had that filter that was essentially this face? Mm. It was a filter that you could put over your face that was like a plastic surgery face. I literally can't think of a more articulate way to put it. I think it was called something like Fix It or Inject Me or something. There were two different ones and they had very obvious names that were referring to plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures. And I felt weird about it at the time. And I know that might seem a little uptight and my outrage does exist on a spectrum. Like, don't get me wrong, I wasn't losing sleep over this. (laughs) But it did make me raise an eyebrow or two because it felt stupidly irresponsible. Like I felt like it gave young people the tool not just to imagine their faces being better, but putting those changes into practice. Mm. But then I think... What's the difference between that, and I know that there is a difference, but this is just where my mind keeps going, and a general filter that makes them look good? Because that is not just an imagination of a better face. That is also another filter that clears your pores or makes you look more beautiful. It's just not got those plastic surgery overlays. Well, and then this is the problem with this type of story and angle. You go down a rabbit warren. It's like, okay, so if we're not okay with filters on Instagram, are we okay with makeup and contouring and concealer? And it opens up a whole bevy of issues about femininity and how we express beauty. I do want to say I don't ever blame any single woman for bending to these pressures as well. There is so much socio-cultural pressure on us from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep to be as beautiful as physically possible. And I think it is so thoroughly unsurprising that plastic surgery and non-surgical procedures, now that they're more affordable for the average woman, are so ubiquitous and so popular. If I had the financial means, I would probably be getting Botox right now. And I wonder how you feel about that. One thing that I do find sickening is the financial element of this. Oh my God. I hate that brands like ZipPay and Afterpay are now being installed in injectable clinics around the country and that they're using the tagline like pout now, pay later. I think given Australian women already have so many hurdles in front of them when it comes to financial equity, the fact that we are putting ourselves into debt and putting ourselves in these situations for beauty ideals 
is worrying. And when I say I don't have the financial means, it must be a prioritizing thing. I don't think I have the financial means right now to do this because I would have to have so much excess income to see this is a worthwhile investment. Well, that's the thing. And when she said I could, there was one place that seemed more affordable. And when she said more affordable, she said I could put it on my credit card mm. in terms of affordable, like the limit wouldn't be exceeded. Another line that the plastic surgeons kept throwing out or their selling point was this idea of it being empowering and the idea of enhancing rather than fixing. And I just got a little frustrated with that selling point because you're literally changing a face. Like I understand when we're talking about makeup and we're talking about the rabbit warren of what's acceptable and what's not, I really do think there's a difference between changing the physical aspects of your face rather than just enhancing them with a product like a foundation. And I think we've hijacked this concept of empowerment so much to make us feel better about the choices we're making. And I think the thing that made me stop the most in this entire story was the line where she said, I thought about a line from the book Perfect Me by the philosopher Helen Widows. Choice cannot make an unjust or exploitative practice or act somehow magically just or non-exploitative. Isn't that so interesting? Internally, I think if you are trying to sell something as empowering when you have to hand over your credit card or hand over money to do it, that instantly debunks the empowering element of it. I think if you're being asked to hand over money, you need to be looking at the wider system at play. And it feels like to me that plastic surgeons are kind of hijacking the skincare industry selling lines. This idea of we're just enhancing, we're empowering, we're not fixing anything. Plastic surgeon Jason Diamond said to Tolentino, I think it's become much more mainstream to think about taking care of your face and your body as part of your general well-being. It's kind of understood now it's okay to try and look your best. I almost pissed my pants laughing when I read that. Taking care of your face. The parallels between the commentary between the skincare industry and the plastic surgery industry in this piece are scary. They have adopted the skincare selling lines. And I think the one thing that we haven't touched on in this discussion yet is the skincare industry complex where the like the economics of self-care has put more pressure on us to have the perfect face. I feel like this is just the same thing, but we're physically rearranging our face and using the same selling points. I wrote down that quote too. That's so funny. I do think trying to sell injections as part of your general well-being is a pretty <laughs> tedious line to draw. It's like the world's biggest stretch. Like I was like, oh my God, you've done it. Like you've literally taken this about as far as you can. Isn't Botox like part poison as well or something? Like surely there are that many toxins or like low-level, low-grade poisons in Botox that you can't pass it off as general well-being. And I say that as someone who might get Botox in the future. I am curious, how do you feel when I say that are you surprised and how do you feel about that? No, because I'm hardly going to come onto this mic and say I will never do it either. Mm. Like I think how can you possibly ever never say never? I also think as much as I want to rattle out that quote about, you know, choice and just because you're making a choice doesn't therefore make it empowering. I mean, how often do we talk about the fact that you're making a choice in a vacuum and with context yes. and that context is patriarchal? So I'm not going to say that I'm not going to do it. Who knows what pressures I'll succumb to as I get older? I, I very likely might, but I just hope that I don't do you know what I mean like yeah. I hope that I don't um because I would love to be stronger than that but then that also seems a bit stupid to me to assume it's strength and courage that's going to stop me from doing that because that seems stupid yeah I feel like we're all in an ocean of pressure and if someone gets pulled into the rip then I don't blame you I might get pulled into the rip also well, so might I and I hope we don't because men don't seem to be able to be pulled as quickly as we do but there's <laughs> that's because men are stronger and faster Zara. <laughs> maybe yeah it's so much about strength no I, I wish I didn't say I hope I'm stronger than that I don't know how I'll 
else to word it. It's a really messy thing to try and explain. Yeah, and I think if we rid this of judgment, like I don't judge any woman who does this. And I think the less judgment, the better because women aren't to blame for this. Like if we come down on individual women for doing this, then that's just really unfair because women fucking cop it enough in the beauty industry. It is absolutely not the individual. It is the system. And I feel like that should be the tagline (laughs) of this entire podcast. It's not you, it's the system. I'll give everyone some flotation devices to help (laughs) us swim. Now, Zara, normally we'd go straight into the last segment, but no, 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 my friend. Today, we need to find out if you, our resident oracle, was correct when you predicted listener Jen's Bumble date would get a 7.5 out of 10. How do you feel? Like, very confident. Really? That doesn't surprise me at all. Hello? Hello, is that Jen? Yes. That was a quick pickup. I feel like you've got good news for me, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) Jen, we are, of course, back on the microphones this week to find out about how your blind bumble date – can it be a blind bumble date? Is that a thing? I feel like they all are. How your bumble date on Tuesday night went. We had the Oracle Zara McDonald predict a 7.5 out of 10 and a second date lined up already. Please do tell us exactly how the night went. Okay. Yeah, I'd say it was like an eight. Yeah, that is round up, round the (laughs) 7.5 up. (laughs) (laughs) What Um, made it an eight? This is really good. Ooh. Oh, no, no, no. You just got along well. Yeah. And, and how are we looking for date two? Good. There's a date two tomorrow. Oh, my <laughs> God. Wow. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if we give this to you, Zara. We Jen, what do you reckon? Is this, like a, is this an accurate prediction from Zara or are you just bringing it down to an eight when really it was an 8.5 or a nine? <laughs> no, I feel like it was accurate. <laughs> of course it was. I'm the oracle. Jen, date two tomorrow. I did say it would go to date three. So could you uh, please let us know if it goes to date three? Because then I'd be extra, extra, extra right, which I, I do love being. We can put something in the Facebook group if it goes to date three, I think. What happens if Jen and this boy get married and it's Zara's prediction? That I'll just, officiate. Do you, what do you predict for the end of the relationship? Oh, sorry, that's quite morbid. The <laughs> end of the relationship. What do you predict long term for Jen and this man? I'm so sorry, Jen. He won't be your husband. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, okay. (laughs) That's a pretty like easy prediction to make. What are the chances they'll get married? Whatever. I think you you can't give me easy or hard predictions. The predictions are the predictions because they're true. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's just fact. It's just you reading the future. You can't argue with facts. Jen, thank you so much for your time. Please keep us in the loop about tomorrow and let us know if there's date three. Will do. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jen. (laughs) Bye. Twenty nineteen has been a huge year for Rihanna, one that's been supposedly her highest earning twelve months to date. And yet there's no music to speak of, literally none. In fact, Rihanna has not released a single in over two years. Despite this, she is more relevant and influential than ever. Zara, why do you think that's the case? Oh, just coming at me with the big questions. As always, I feel like I always do that to I you. usually ease you and be like, how did you feel about this? Before Whereas we get I'm like, to- Zara, define what life means. <laughs> Straight away, before we actually get to the crux of the combo. Um, this is the question that I've been grappling with literally for the last few weeks because I've been thinking about Rihanna more than I probably should it's keeping be. keeping you up at night. It's <laughs> not keeping me up at night. <laughs> but I am like chasing as much Rihanna content as I possibly can because I find myself suddenly very invested in the Rihanna story. I wonder if it's because very recently the Hollywood Reporter reported that Amazon paid a whopping US $25 million, which is about, what, Australian $36 million, for a documentary about her life directed by Peter Berg. There is one 1,000 hours of 
footage, apparently. Yeah, that came out the week after it was announced Billie Eilish had been paid the same amount by Apple TV. So apparently they'll be released around the same time as competitors. Billie Eilish's life documentary and Rihanna's life documentary both were paid $25 million. I know I'd prefer to probably watch Rihanna, but I'll probably watch both. I think I'll probably watch both, but... I will be very drawn to Rihanna because there seems like more of a story there. Billie Eilish does have an incredible story, but she's still only young. Well, there's double the life with Rihanna. That's literally all I mean. There's more to tell. There's literally more to tell. So there was a great story on Junkie this week um, from writer Jared Richards about what Rihanna did this year. And I wanted to read out a few of the things that she's actually done with her year because it actually makes me quite tired. <laughs> she announced a fashion house in collaboration with LVMH. Um, and I think this is such a big deal, bigger than most people probably get their heads around because she doesn't just become the first person of colour to lead an LVMH fashion house, but the first woman to create an original brand for them too. I don't think they've had a new fashion house since about 1987. Mm-hmm. So it's a huge deal that they want to pin their the future of their business, I to guess, Rihanna. to Rihanna. Absolutely. Another thing that happened was that Fenty launched worldwide online. In September, she did a Savage Fenty show at New York Fashion Week, which was kind of um, her answer to the Victoria's Secret fashion show, but dare I say a little more woke inclusive version. She put the nail in the coffin for the VS fashion show. I really show. think she did. That was also bought by Amazon, so you can see a thread going on here. Yeah. She trademarked Fenty's skin in 2019, so I think you can guess what might be going on behind the scenes there. She also starred in Guava Island. Did you know this? I read this upon my research with Donald Glover. With Donald Glover, which I didn't know. It was about an hour film and they were both starring as lovers, which I just didn't know. And it was written by his brother. She was also on the cover of US Vogue, Vogue Australia, Vogue Hong Kong, Interview, Harper's Bazaar China, Harper's Bazaar US and the New York Times Style Magazine, which I think proves her relevance more than ever which I find most interesting because she hasn't released any music. Absolutely. There was a quote that she gave to Interview Magazine. I will work all day in a meeting, leave that meeting at 1 or 2 a.m., then come home with a tiny group of staff and work until 5, 6 or 7 a.m. It's the reason why an album isn't being spat out like it used to. I can't wrap my head around that. I read more about her lifestyle. Apparently she sleeps in like the morning and then works all throughout the night and that makes me die inside a little bit. Why do you think people are so drawn to Rihanna? I think it's because, I'm so glad you asked, I think it's because (laughs) she puts out quality all the time. I know this is a bizarre example, but we've had our makeup done a lot in the last couple of months for live shows and for different things that we've been doing. And every single makeup artist we have had do our makeup has had a Fenty Beauty product that they swear by. And I think that says a lot. I think that if you're lending your name and your brand to something, it needs to be a quality product. Otherwise, your name and your brand is at stake. And what I really admire about Rihanna is despite the fact that she's pushing out a bunch of stuff, like a bunch of products, a bunch of businesses, a bunch of product lines, it all tends to be of the highest, most reputable quality. And I think that's a pretty incredible feat to be going into beauty industry, which so many musicians and influencers and reality stars do. Like, for example, KKW Beauty is not renowned as being a great beauty line. Kylie Skin was not renowned as being a great skincare line. But everything that Rihanna touches seems to turn to gold. And that's the question that I keep coming back to. What is it about her? I think I agree with you. I think 
there's that quality control. And I think that there's this general sentiment of respect. And I wonder where that's come from, but there's so much respect for Rihanna and almost this inbuilt assumption that she would have done all her research and checked all her T's and dotted her I's or whatever the saying is before <laughs> another dorky saying via me. Isn't that so meta that that's a saying about like attention to detail and you didn't have the attention to detail to recite it correctly. <laughs> so true. It's also such an old person saying, but I seem to be queen of them. Anyway, there is this inbuilt respect because I think people assume she does her research and does her work. Also, I think the being tied to something as historically luxurious as LVMH is huge because I think that's all about quality. But what that does is it doesn't make her seem out of reach or out of touch in a way that Beyonce does. And that kind of distinction is crucial here, I think. I wanted to ask you, because remember when Fenty Beauty was launched and there was so much conversation around the fact that this was an incredibly inclusive beauty line. It was one of the first to the market with 40 shades of foundation. And I wondered if it felt too simplistic to say that it was inclusivity that separated her from the pack. But then I read this article on high snobiety, which I'd actually never heard of, but Great article. Is that just some random person's blog? No, but I thought so because they interviewed um, Alison Collins, who's oh. the beauty financial editor at Women's Wear Daily. Wow. And she said, Fenty Beauty did a really good job of talking to consumers about what it offered. It's the brand that landed the 40 Shades of Foundation conversation on the map. Other brands had done 40 Shades, but making sure that women of colour have really had options wasn't something the brands had focused the conversation around before. It generated buzz and that buzz led to sales. And I think that's maybe what I was looking for. It wasn't that they were the first to do this though they were definitely early adopters it was that they were best at having the conversation they're great at communicating it and they love conversations around this like it, it's so important to have the right language and the right tools to communicate that to your consumer base I think another element of this is that Rihanna genuinely and I know again this sounds Pollyanna she does genuinely seem to be a good person like reading about her made me like her more and more increasingly I had no idea that she held an annual diamond ball it's called Rihanna's annual diamond Diamond Ball, where she raises money for her Clara Lionel Foundation. Her foundation has raised tens of millions of dollars for education programs to aid impoverished young girls in Barbados and across the world. In Feb 2017, she was named as Harvard University's Humanitarian of the Year. And whether or not she is a nice person is almost irrelevant here. It's the fact that she does seem likeable and we'll probably never know the truth of what she's like behind closed doors. But they're very good at communicating her likability to the masses and I think that's important too. Rihanna's fans are 3.7 times more likely to buy her products than fans of other celebrities, according to research really? published by marketing consultancy firm NPD in 2016. Wow. So I think there's a, an element of marketability there because of likability, but also because of her story. There is that underdog thing that we tend to gravitate to. She's not just born into this there's clearly work that's gone into building herself up and the idea that she doesn't want to separate herself from that story but make it part of her story and give back to the community that she's from is attractive to a lot of people. It's quite poetic, isn't it? And I think that's what will make the Amazon documentary so fascinating. She did grow up with a parent who was drug addicted. And I think that is a really important and interesting story to tell. Isn't that really interesting? I wanted to finish with a quote from Joanne Yulin Jong, who is the founder of a strategic brand consultancy firm called Yulin Creative. And she said what it is about Rihanna that means people are so much more likely to buy her products is that she said there's still room for a personal connection with Rihanna. She allows for people to project themselves 
onto her. When a celebrity is too strong, too powerful, they are seen solely as an icon. And I thought that was very interesting, the difference between icon status and the status of Rihanna, which is almost beyond icon, that you still feel like she's almost coming from a level playing field, even though she's not. Absolutely. I think that's all we've got time for today. That definitely is all we've got time for. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. It's our second last Monday episode for the year. Yes, do not stress. I know we said before we'll be going on a three-week break. You still have next Monday's episode to enjoy. We'll be doing a bit of a festive special for you all, getting into the festive mood. But we will also be back on Thursday with another In Conversation episode. If you want to support Shameless before then, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or click follow on Spotify. And if you so feel like it, leave a review. We would so appreciate your support. You can also take a screenshot of you listening and put it up on your Instagram story and talk to us. Tell us what you enjoyed about the episode, how you're feeling. We have a whole bunch of places you can reach us. So please do that. Come find us in our Facebook group, Shameless Podcast Community, on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. And as always, we will be back in your ears on Thursday. Bye. Oh, God, not again. <laughs> Can we leave that by in 2019? <laughs>Oh, hi, it's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week now. Every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a time <laughs> to be in your ear holes. So essentially, <laughs> each episode, we unpack the real life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in mm-hmm. their lives, which, let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to... To our show, please do head to your favorite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.